Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to another week of Cross Section, the podcast that encourages listeners to engage Christian faith and biblical values with the political, cultural and news stories from the week. My name is Alicia Edmund and I will be guiding us through today's conversation. I am joined by Peter Linus and Danny Webster. Uh, great to be back together as of three. Peter was not with us last week. Welcome back, Peter. Are you well? I am. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be back. Excited for today's conversation. I'm glad that you are because we're hitting all the controversial and hot topics for this week. So we have planned a full and hopefully robust conversation on all things UK politics. But before we begin, I want to start with a soft interlude uh, in kind of film and creativity. So by the time that you will be listening to this recording, June part two will be hitting cinemas all across the UK. I'm told my podcast fellows are, have yet to see June part one, so maybe they should check that out on Amazon uh, Prime. But most definitely check out next week. I'm looking forward on Monday of an IMAX uh, London viewing with friends. And who knows, we may be discussing the themes in the film of power and human suffering in next week's episode. But to transition into uh, story one, uh, last week we hosted a poll on our social media asking our followers and listeners what themes they would love us to talk more about. So this week is just an exclusive UK news and politics conversation. So buckle up. This week we will be talking abortion, Israel-Gaza conflict, and particularly the aftermath of the commons, protests, and the need for restrictions that have all dominated headlines this last week. So if you were previously listening to the podcast through Bluetooth speakers, now might be the time for you to transition into headphone listening in case you have any children or young people in the room, as we will be discussing sensitive issues. So into story one and the subject of abortion. This conversation has grown in momentum in the last week, particularly as there will be a key vote uh, in March on the criminal justice bill. Uh, last Friday in The Times, we saw the start of running headlines on the possibility of decriminalizing abortion for England and Wales. The amendment that has mobilised uh, cross-party support, led by Diana Johnson, Labour MP, uh, is seeking to remove women from the criminal law related to abortion and introduce possibilities for women to self-induce an abortion up to birth in the UK, which would fundamentally change abortion laws and the regulatory system here in the UK. In her article, she spoke about the, how it, this is treating abortion purely as a health issue rather than a criminal issue and says it would be a historical step. Politicians like Diana Johnson and other pro-abortion activists often say that abortion is about my body, my choice, and abortion is a women's issue. So confronting the elephant in the room, I have two male speakers on today's podcast. Coming to you first, Peter, and then Danny, how... As men, do you engage your opinion or your view on the issue of abortion? And what are your reactions on the idea of decrim to the rest of the UK? Well, I think, firstly, I engage as a human being. Uh, I mean, that's what it is, and as a Christian, and understanding that we are all made in the image of God. Um, and 
so that that's my primary lens in. Obviously, I'm married to a woman and I have two daughters as well. So that also frames my thinking and engagement about it. But I want to kind of push back on the notion that men shouldn't have any voice in this conversation. Um, I absolutely understand that the impact on women is uh, much more significant. But of course, the very reality is it takes both a male and a female um, to create a new life in this moment. I think the idea of decriminalizing is really, really problematic. It seems it's portrayed as a simple step. Oh, this is just about making this healthcare. There is a healthcare aspect to it. It's a false dichotomy to say it's just healthcare or it's just justice. You have both laws in play, as you often do. Think of all sorts of issues like drug, uh, drugs and alcohol. You're going to have a healthcare aspect to that and you're going to have laws as a backstop. Just to be clear, what we would end up with here is that like a hawk's egg would have better protection than an unborn child in the UK. We have the most liberal abortion laws in most of Western Europe. It's absolutely staggering. Most people think, oh, we're the outlier. We're somehow weird. Most countries have a cutoff at around 12 weeks across Europe. We are the outlier at 24 weeks. And this would de facto push us to birth. Now, you would say the law would still be 24 weeks. You would allow the abortion. But there'd be no criminal backstop. And that's all we're seeking here. You've got to have the criminal sitting behind to say there is value in the human life before birth. And so I think it's a really bad idea. And it's being forced because we allowed uh, telemedicine drugs, abortion drugs to be provided by poster over the phone. And those cases have gone wrong, as many of us warned that they would. And so the solution, instead of undoing that and ramping that back and, and returning to face-to-face consultations, the correct way if you're going to have abortion, that this should be done. And I don't support that, but if you're going to do it, at least have it with two doctors involved. The other solution then is just to get rid of that full stop and basically to allow abortion on demand. And that's a very bad idea in my view. Regardless of anything else, it's just a, it's an unhealthy legal aspect. Even if you agree with abortion, this is not the way to do it. And you're tagging on an amendment. So listen, I could go on forever. I'll let Danny come in now. Well, I think the, the specifics of this amendment are also somewhat peculiar because it exempts women from prosecution. It says it doesn't change how abortions can be provided, so regulations would still be in place. But as Peter says, um, a woman would face no consequences for having an abortion after 24 weeks. And then that leads to the potential for abuse of access of um, abortion pills, which are for people in early pregnancy, people getting hold of those when they're later in their pregnancy, or I've heard someone describe this as um, kind of legalising backstreet abortions. So actually the system where people are getting abortions, not through proper um, hospitals or clinics, but because they face no legal consequence for it, they're procuring abortions where they can. So I I think it's just... I think it's a really bad approach, even if you were to want um, far wider access to abortion. Um, I think, just coming back, let's see, to your first comment, um, I think similarly to Peter, um, I'm a dad to two small children. Uh, That brings some of my uh, obvious insight on how I think about parenthood. I think it is important for uh, fathers to be fully involved and fully aware of how um, of decisions around children, because I think actually to make it only about a woman's decision that uh, removes the father from the life and the welfare and the continuing parenting of the child. And actually, we want both parents to be involved 
as much as possible in the life of the child. So I think it's important we can have uh, conversations about abortion and about childbirth with men and women all involved. And I think very sadly, I'm based in Northern Ireland, as we probably know from my funny accent, and we had some of the most balanced uh, laws relating to abortion, in my view, for a very long period of time. So we didn't have the 1967 Abortion Act um, uh, and only allowed abortion in the, in, in the circumstances where there, there was a threat to the life and health of the mother. We then changed, and this was forced through by Westminster against the will of the people of Northern Ireland who didn't have a vote at the time. So Westminster really used the, the fact that the Northern Ireland Assembly was down to decriminalise abortion in Northern Ireland. And we know from the stats on that that then abortion rates have gone up because it shifts the cultural perception. And I think we still want to say, look, abortion is not ideal. It's not good, I don't think, on any level. But I think as a culture, we can still agree this is not a good outcome. It is less than preferred. The overall population wants it in certain circumstances. While I disagree, I have to acknowledge that. But we should still send a signal to say, culturally, this is not the ideal, and this is another life. We saw it uh, even last week, was it, uh, with the certificates for the loss of a child that came through, and it's the loss of a baby is the language used. When you have a, a royal baby, when somebody's pregnant, it's always a royal baby, even though it's not yet born. These certificates were for babies that were not yet born. So le the, the government is recognizing that this was a baby. Um, so this is for miscarriages uh, and a sort of significant uh, certificate, sorry, recognizing loss. Because we do, we culturally understand that there is, this is more than a clump of cells. Nobody actually thinks that at this moment. But we have to say that to justify determination. So let's have a realistic grown-up conversation, but I don't think this is a good way to go at all. I think first and foremost for our listeners, what is encouraging is to hear is that two men who are fathers that feel um, passionate and equally um, confident to engage in this. And I just want to say that first and foremost to our listeners, that wherever uh, there is an opportunity or wherever you feel that because of your sex, you cannot engage in this topic, that I, as a female, need male voices in this space advocating alongside me and other women that are wanting the law to be fair to both women in pregnancy and to the unborn child. Uh, just this week, we had Dawn McAvoy uh, from Northern Ireland, who's the Both Lives UK lead for the Evangelical Alliance, visiting a church in Sidcup, sharing and giving an account, the biblical point of view, the, the vision for both lives, the justice element, the love. And it was great to just have an open space within a church setting of equipping and encouraging the church to discuss this issue. This issue um, is not just being discussed outside the church, but it most definitely impacts individuals and families across all ages and ethnic heritage in terms of pregnancy and pregnancy crisis. So that's my first encouragement to our listeners to not shy away from this. Do visit, um, we'll put information in the show notes of how you can uh, request a speaker and connect with some of our resources that talk about um, the kind of the UK statistic landscape the political landscape uh, and how the church is responding. But coming back specifically to this amendment, we ourselves at the Evangelical Alliance have been engaged since uh, the autumn 2023, when first uh, noise uh, and 
site of decriminalizing abortion was being introduced. And following this recording, I will be writing an update encouraging further calls to action to the church and to our members to engage on this issue and to write to your local MP. So this is not a settled issue in the UK. Uh, and these amendments propose uh, great harm and risk to women at every stage of pregnancy. So moving from our first story that is on the topic of abortion, we are now moving into story two to bring some level of explanation into what took place in the House of Commons on the 21st of February, uh, an incident that has snowballed into this week where conversations of anti-Semitism, potential or Islamophobia has been discussed and in eventually resulted in an MP being suspended. So bringing our listeners up to date on the political story that took place and how you as a Christian can engage in the conversation. So last Wednesday was meant to be the Scottish National Party's Opposition Day, uh, where they chose to discuss and pass a motion on the immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Ahead of the debate, there was much speculation that this, the wording of the SNP motion, would divide the Labour front bench, uh, as there wasn't uh, as there was greater support for that than there was for um, the Labour Party's position on that. Danny, coming to you first, as I know you've already had a level of practice in engaging and talking about the constitutional fallout. What on earth happened last week, Wednesday? Oh, you, you end up in the deep water of parliamentary procedure if you're not careful. So I'll try and avoid taking our listeners there. Um, I was explaining this to my wife last week when I was getting all excited. We were, I was barfing my children, uh, getting ready for bed while following what was happening on X. And yeah, it was exciting for a few people. Um, so <laughs> the Scottish National Party put down their motion for the opposition day debate. If nothing else happened, that motion would have been voted on and that would have been a motion passed by Parliament. It's not a law, it doesn't force anything to happen, but it would be a motion passed. But other parties and other people can try and amend that motion. The convention of Parliament is, is that when government seeks to amend an opposition day motion, that is the only amendment uh, allowed and that amendment is taken after the original motion. So you would have voted first of all on the Scottish National Party's motion and then on the government's amendment to that motion. The Labour Party weren't happy about that because that meant that their MPs could have either backed the SNP or the government or done neither. And if they'd have done neither, they would have felt, hang on a minute, we're not calling for a ceasefire or any kind of uh, ceasefire. So they wanted their own motion. The Speaker then controversially selected all three motions and said that the Labour motion would be voted first, which would then have amended the Scottish National Party's original motion. And then, if neither of those had passed, then the government, uh, their motion would have been voted on. What ended up happening, the Deputy Speaker actually took a, a vote based on just uh, the sentiment in the room, hands raised, and uh, basically called that the Labour motion had been passed, uh, which was quite controversial. The Conservatives and the SNP boycotted the whole thing. There was contro controversy over it. Uh, the SNP were mad that they didn't get a vote on their motion. The government were mad that parliamentary procedure had been upended. Um, so we were left in this situation. And 
what got obscured in all of this was that this was a motion about uh, the war in Israel and Gaza and whether and how Parliament would call for a ceasefire. Uh, the motions were different. Uh, the SNP were calling for an immediate ceasefire. Labour and the Conservatives were slightly more uh, tentative or caveated in what they said. Um, but all of that, what was actually what Parliament were trying to say about the war in Israel and Gaza got obscured because of the parliamentary theatrics. And then there's been discussions as to whether uh, Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, has lost confidence, 70 or so MPs calling him for him to go. It doesn't look like he's going anywhere. Uh, but this has certainly created a lot of bad feeling in Parliament. Thank you very much, Danny, for that comprehensive overview of the state of Parliament. And definitely whilst I was watching the debate, it was uh, somewhat surprising and, and astonishing to see Stephen Flynn, the leader of the Scottish National Party in Westminster, grow in anger as it became clear that the SNP motion would not be discussed or voted upon. And so Labour's vote went through by default. And so kind of turning on that point that you raise about the role of the speaker and him saying that the reason that he wanted all three um, amendments to be discussed is because he wanted the broadest platform and the broadest debate for all MPs to share their views on what is a challenging and difficult uh, situation, uh, but also taking into consideration the safety of MPs. And that's where I just want to pivot this story slightly, because whilst there was chaos unraveling within the Commons, there was outside uh, pro-Palestinian protesters uh, protesting uh, around the debate, but also projecting uh, from the river to the sea onto Parliament's Elizabeth Tower. Uh, for those who are international listeners, that's Big Ben. So we'll be talking more about protests in our final story, but pivoting and coming to you, Peter, you're based in Northern Ireland. You see news updates of how from the river to the sea are being plastered and projected onto Parliament. What was your immediate reactions and thoughts to that? Well, firstly, I'd like to arrange an intervention for Danny's kids if bath time involves the explanation of the procedures that we just heard. So I think for their sake and his poor wife. But um, yeah, I mean, symbolism matters. And, and so the projecting up of these symbols is, again, the contested public space. We see it officially. We light up public buildings for all sorts of things. And people get very excited about what it should be and what it shouldn't be. The phrase is controversial. It obviously comes from a, a kind of slogan clearing from the River Jordan across the Mediterranean Sea. Is it a clearing out of that? Is it a claim on that land? You know, lots of organisations make those claims and use those phrases. The question here is, does that require the wiping out of Israel? And that's the contention, certainly, of one side. The other is saying, we're just claiming back our original land. But hugely contested phrase. And symbolism matters. You know, I come from a place where we've had the terrorist acts, three and a half thousand people lost their lives in Northern Ireland. Um, so we had the threats to the MPs, uh, a number of them were killed, um, where people regularly looked under their cars, where people, uh, most MPs had protection as the judges and many others. But we've seen the symbolism reversed recently in, in Northern Ireland it, it, with the assembly back up, attending football matches and rugby matches and people realising that that is incredibly important to do those things. So symbolism matters and the projecting of those phrases is deeply unhelpful, I think and the push to M on MPs. But the, the, the toxic nature of the public square right now is just something we've got to start naming and talking about. 
from my daughter's hockey through to the MPs. It's crazy what people think is now acceptable to push back and say and what they're saying on TikTok and on social media and the level of aggression in that and the kind of toxicity in the comments. And it is a real challenge uh, for us as Christians to how we respond to that for society as a whole. We obviously saw the death of an MP. We've seen attacks on MPs. We've seen the situations. These are not sustainable, but the level of aggression people have is just, I find it really difficult to fathom. And how are we going to navigate this? But politicians do not help themselves. The procedural games that were played in the House of Commons around this vote doesn't help. They know they're playing a bit of a game in who gets called and how they, they kind of bluster about during these debates. But what they don't understand is other people see that and think this is normal and it does normalise some of that behaviour. So I think there's pressure on us all as to how we do this well. I have strongly held views and I like to articulate those fairly strongly at times. But I have to recognise that there's a, there's a responsibility on me to do that well as, at the same time. And I try not to personalise those even though I forthrightly put my views across. And I think I, ha I think there was understanding of why the Speaker of the House wanted multiple views to be heard, wanted MPs to have a chance to vote on multiple options. So there are questions actually, do some of the conventions need changing, but to do so unilaterally. But then I think some of the criticism was because actually, yes, the threat to MPs is real, but to then make the changes because of that threat is mm. to give in to that threat. And I think that has what has sparked some of this criticism of actually are uh, radical groups having undue influence uh, on how our politics uh, takes place? And I think there are legitimate concerns around that. And so building on those two contributions that you both made there, Peter, in terms of the toxicity surrounding politics and the public square in general, but even more so when we're talking about the, the conflict within Israel and Gaza, uh, and you, Danny, talking about how language matters, how we engage in this well, this story escalates even further where the, several uh, conservative MPs um, somewhat disappointed by the speaker's engagement and decision choose loose language, I would say, to give their analysis in following media news and outlets. So the, they immediately after we had the former Home Secretary, Shwela Brabman, write a very strongly worded uh, op-ed in The Telegraph, where she states that the speaker's actions have led to, and this is a direct quote, Islamists, the extremists and the anti-Semites are in charge now. Uh, and then moving on a day later, we had uh, Mr. Lee Anderson, the former deputy chair of the Conservative Party and uh, MP for Ashfield, come out on GB News and equally use language that is targeted and directed at uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan, saying that he is in under the control of the Islamists and so is Keir Starmer. And as a result, uh, the Prime Minister has suspended Lee Anderson. And so this conversation, the debate of what's happened in last week uh, and the outworking of both the speaker's decision, its impact, its toxicity, it's just escalated. And there have been huge calls from Keir Starmer, Sadiq Khan and other journalists as they've been interviewing ministers this week, calling on the Prime Minister and Conservative members to describe Lee Anderson's comments as Islamophobic stroke racist. Mr. Anderson subsequently come out and described his comments as clumsy. Coming to you, Peter, because you're good at the difficult conversations and questions. <laughs> Was Mr. Anderson's comments clumsy, as he described, or are they Islamophobic in nature? 
Well, they're definitely clumsy. At least he's conceded that. Um, and again, it goes to this point. How how are our leaders um, leading well in this moment? How are they speaking well? How are we modelling anything different? The difficulty with Islamophobia, like, and I'm not particularly a fan of the phrase Christ- Christophobia, isn't it? That's the one yeah. they try and use about Christianity. I mean, these these phrases aren't defined. Um, and even anti-Semitism, there's a contested sort of... Uh, understanding i think on on there's a definition that is used but not all have agreed and so um i do think we need to recognize that there are influences going on here um, and we as christians will often seek to influence the policy agenda we often would like to say we're very limited in how we can do that um and i have no problem with muslim those of muslim faith trying to do something similar and um, where that gets problematic is when you've a phrasing that says they've got control of somebody and they've got control of aspects of be it the mm. mayor of London, the leader of the Labour Party and others. Now, if we can prove that that's true, that's different, but it, it doesn't appear to be true. No, they are seeking to influence. And I think we've got to find space for me in a way to have conversations. I do have concerns around some of the ways in which understandings of the Muslim faith are being articulated within the UK around the kind of essentially de facto blasphemy laws that are coming. You can't say anything critical of the Prophet Muhammad. Well, I do disagree with what he taught and articulated. I want to do that respectfully, but also forthrightly and say, no, I absolutely do not believe that is offering um, you know, the correct way. As a follower of Jesus, I'm going to critique other face or push back and say no but we need to find ways to do that and we don't want i don't want to see a blasphemy law essentially by the back door coming through around that and at the same time there are areas where we agree with our uh, muslim um friends and, and want to you know we build a coalition with them on certain issues where we actually um would end up in the same policy position even though we're coming from very very different perspectives so I, yeah i think we've got to navigate this one and there's probably a lot more thinking to be done on that and work to be done hopefully danny's got more wisdom than i have on that one well i think one of the one of the challenges with the term islamophobia is that as peter says it can kind of combine criticism of islam with um hatred towards people of a particular faith and I, I think we want to speak out quite clearly against hatred of people for any reason including because of their faith whereas we do want to have space to have robust criticism of beliefs and viewpoints and and even practices uh, but not let, not let that become uh, either broad sweeping generalizations about people that belong to particular faiths. And I think that's what Lee Anderson did. It was this kind of broad sweeping generalizations of, and allegations of control. So I think that there are, I, I, I think his, his comments went beyond clumsy. Um, but I think there is then ensuring that in our public debate, we do have space for the criticism, both of beliefs and practices, of beliefs we might disagree with. Absolutely, and we're currently in a cultural climate, if you're particularly living in London or any of the metropolitan cities across uh, the UK, whereby there has been a rise of uh, anti-Semitism, a rise of kind of uh, violence and kind of poor use of language uh, across all fronts and there's a responsibility on politicians on our political institutions to model 
a way of not just disagreeing well, but forming and bringing about unity that is required in these days and in these times. So this most definitely isn't a conversation that is going away, particularly today as Rochdale goes to the by-election, uh, has its by-election and the conversation there around Israel, Gaza, pro-Palestinian protests uh, and the responsibility of the UK government and politicians to do and seek change. And just our counsel and wisdom to listeners is to use your words wisely uh, and that to provoke in a way of encouraging greater thought, different thinking on issues rather than using your language carelessly that incites and unharms and not just offends, but is actually disrespectful at its core. So a moment to breathe as I give a kind of social media promo. You're listening to Cross Section, a podcast produced by the Evangelical Alliance. Please do like, comment and share. Uh, and why not get in touch with the team, uh, either sharing your perspective on today's news story or a news story you would love us to discuss in future. You can contact us on cross.section at eauk.org or follow us on social media. If you're on X, the handle is EA. UK News, or if on Instagram and Facebook, Evangelical Alliance. So moving into our third and final story, where last week's fallout in the chamber has led to conversations around whether the government should restrict protesting uh, rules and laws within London and UK-wide. We come to James Cleverley, who's the current Home Secretary, commenting in the media and actually a timely report published by the Home Affairs Select Committee that was looking on policing of protests following the Public Order Act 2023 uh, that came out last year, the King's coronation and the ongoing conversation and protests linked to Israel and Gaza. Coming to you first, Danny, uh, uh, an open question. Have you ever been on a protest or march? If so, what was the cause and how long ago was it? I've been on a couple of uh, marches. It was some time ago. Um, I think the, they, were, they were generally around international development and climate change, uh, often with organisations like Tear Fund and other Christian international development charities that were involved in. I remember going to one event that had a prayer service in Westminster Central Hall and then we joined all the other marches out on the streets in London. Uh, so I've been on a couple. Um, I have to say those marches were very friendly uh, affairs. They certainly were not uh, aggressive demonstrations. Um, Are you saying you didn't glue yourself to the road, Danny? Uh, no, we kind of meandered our way to Hyde Park uh, while holding a few little signs. And you, Peter? I have. I have. I am unbelievably old enough to have been on a march for Jesus. I mean, that'll shock our listeners, of course, uh, from way, way back in the day. But I have also been on a protest or officially a parade in Northern Ireland. So um, we went on a prayer walk um, related to both lives, uh, both lives matters. It was then. Um, but in Northern Ireland, if you gather people to do something like that, you actually have to notify the Parades Commission. Um, of our prayer walk so we belatedly did that we had a counter protest that was nearly bigger than we were um, 
which I'm glad children aren't listening. They they had very particular banners and things, shall we say, that came along of the female anatomy to counter-protest us for women's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, but our prayer walk was designed ultimately to go to the Human Rights Commission and to stand outside and pray. But they were very nervous about this. It was part of a larger kind of festival of events in Belfast, just a mainstream festival. So the Human Rights Commission got nervous and invited us in instead. So we went in and met the, the commissioners, chatted through our concerns this was back to decriminalization, back when it was going through. Uh, and then ultimately said, well, we are on a prayer march, so do you mind if we pray for you? So we sat in the commission praying for them one evening and then headed around to City Hall. So it was the most bizarre and unusual march that a stroke parade that I've ever been on. But we have to notify in Northern Ireland, due to our lovely history, uh, anything like that to the police in advance and get permission to do it. So our rights to protest are already slightly more limited than the rest of you. Mm. Well, I've, d- I've definitely also been on a march for Jesus. I think I was quite small. I might have been in a buggy at the time um, but I was also I was moved on by the police once for prayer walking um, we were praying in Southampton city centre there was a group of us and we were moved on by the police um, thought crime which... Alicia I know you might get out of this by hosting but I mean have you ever been on a, a march I've been on several I was, I was going to share I've been on several so my first march was Many years ago on International Refugee Day, uh, members starting on Victoria Bank and ending up in Parliament Square. Um, It was a peaceful protest, uh, intergeneration. There were many families uh, present along the march. There was kind of crafts, uh, kind of raising awareness on the importance of um, kind of what the UK government was doing at the time uh, around no recourse to public funds and how that was impacting uh, those who were seeking uh, asylum in the UK. Uh, And more recently, I joined um, a part of the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, which might be somewhat controversial to some listeners, but I wasn't there um, in a sense of uh, anarchy or in a sense of kind of pushing back on the government, I I just felt in my body quite strongly that there was a lot going on in London that was quite uh, impacting me. And so I joined and and was involved more in a prayer walk on my own, uh, just being a part of the march, but then left before it all kicked off outside the Home Office. So yeah, I've definitely been on a couple of protests and I've uh, also done March for Life as well. So yeah. So pleased to hear that all three of us have been involved, faith in action on the street. We we love that. So James Clevery in his interview was speaking and saying and commenting on the events of last week, saying that uh, no MP should feel bullied into changing their stance on what uh, uh, Israel-Gaza war, uh, and that he felt that the organisers around all the pro-Palestinian marches within London have made their point. Uh, And then off the back of that, the Home Affairs uh, Committee, one of its recommendations was that maybe the government or the Home Office should uh, consider amending requirements for protesters, uh, such as increasing the notice period for organisers from what is currently six days to more weeks, uh, as it gives time for the police to prep prepare. So far, which I found staggering in the research, that uh, £25 million has been spent uh, on policing, uh, supporting and protecting and being involved in the protests so far. So just coming back to you both in a sense of um, what the um, 
Home Secretary has said and the Home Affairs Committee, what are your views on terms of the Israel Gaza protests? Is it time for them to stop? Is it time for restrictions? Uh, were you aware of the price and costing to the police, particularly in a time of recession, cost of living? Is that a good use of public service money at the moment? Come to you first, Peter. Um, I, I'm torn a little because I'm, I'm not particularly supportive of, of the way and some of the things the protests are doing, but the right to protest is, is incredibly important. And I can see why you're inclined, people might be inclined to say, let's put extra restrictions, and then, then the moment will come when, for example, the Queen dies and there's a nat natural outpouring and suddenly people are saying, ah, but you've got to give three weeks notice to do so, you know, mm. whatever. There's something that everybody will think is a good idea and suddenly... You get caught, like we, we literally were going for a prayer walk, we thought 10 or 15 people, and next thing we have to serve notice to the Parades Commission, we have to fill in all these forms. So it, it feels like a good idea at the time, and I think the right to protest is important, and again, I come from a place where it's very contested, and marching is very territorial, a lot of it's about owning space, and I find it very challenging. I'm not a big fan of the kind of marching protest in general, but but we've got to be able to do it. And Andy Crouch wrote a really interesting book. Andy Crouch um, was the editor of Christianity Today, and in his cultural book, talks about the difference between occupying and marching or protesting. So occupying is a kind of trying to take over the space, like Occupy Wall Street. He was critiquing that movement and saying, that's not fair. That's taking a space for yourself, a public space, and claiming it. But to walk through a space, to move through it, is, is he felt, the legitimate form of protest. And that was helpful for me to think, um, okay, we've got to respect the right to protest. Uh, I have lots of questions. I'd like to sit down with the organisers and say, please stop doing this. And um, The cost is legit, and I think we might have to say you're going to have to put down some money. If you're going to do this, you have to pay. If you run a sporting event now, a marathon, a road race, you have to pay for the police time and presence to run, monitor the roads and a lot of these things. I think that's fair. Um, so there may be things like that we have to do. We have to be careful. We put these rules in place, and then when we think there is something that's really good that we all should be doing a national outpouring about, suddenly we will be by our own petard and stuck by the, the very rules we put in to stop somebody else. So it's again like free speech. Um, you know, I might disagree with what these guys are saying, but I re I'm going to fight for their right to be able to say it within reason. Yeah, I, I, I go quite far in terms of wanting to defend the right to protest and being very hesitant about putting restrictions on that for just because I might not like either the cause or how they're doing it. I think uh, when people are engaging in criminal activity, that should be dealt with by the police. And I think um, potentially that is, that is a reason for potentially putting some restrictions on future protests uh, where criminal actions have been associated with those protests. I think cost, I'm not surprised by the cost, to be honest. These are large scale events happening frequently. Um, and I, I think maybe requiring organisers to contribute to those costs is one way around it. Uh, I'm reminded that actually I have uh, done another protest. We organised a, a prayer um, event in Parliament. Um, I think it was ahead of an election a while ago. And because it was on Parliament Square, it was a static protest. So we had to inform the Met and fill in all the forms for that one as well. Um, and actually, I think doing that made me realise that there is bureaucracy. There are things to do. There is a reason behind a lot of these things. Um, and that isn't necessarily restricting your freedom or your rights, but it is about ensuring that things can happen in a reasonable way. So I think a balance does need to be found. I don't think, I don't think you can say to a group that uh, they've, they've, you've made your point 
because they would say that they haven't necessarily made their point or there is still more to be said. Um, I don't think we can... We might want people to go home and stop protesting, but I don't think that's a reasonable thing to say. Just because you've already protested, you should not protest anymore. Absolutely. And coming back to you, Danny, before I round up, you've been in uh, Wales uh, in the last 24 hours. And of course, there is protests that are going on outside the Senate from farmers. Do you want to give a sense of what the protests have looked like in Wales uh, and what's going on there? <laughs> well, I didn't actually see the protests in Wales, but I know that a bunch of uh, farmers, in fact, quite a few farmers were uh, had brought their tractors to outside the Senate um, and were. it was to do with requirements on large farm owners to devote some of their land to biodiversity and woodland. I can't remember the details, but they weren't happy about what the Welsh government were proposing. Amazing. So we've come to the close of another week, uh, another episode of Croc Section. Politics and society constantly seem to be in a perpetual cycle of chaos and confusion. And as Christians, we can take confidence in the Genesis story of how our God brings order out of chaos and all those who confess him as Lord play a part in the recreation and new creation, heaven here on earth. So whilst the news becomes increasingly dark, continue to focus on the inextinguishable light that is Jesus and his kingship. Till next week, take care and God bless. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.